This podcast was not produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio, but rather under a kitchen table using a doona as soundproofing. But that doesn't mean the station no longer needs your financial support to stay on air. Our community is not just studios and microphones. It's people. People like yourself, who during COVID-19 value independent community information and creativity more than ever. So, we're counting on you to keep us on air. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and please support our June Station Appeal. Stay safe and thank you for your support. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us from New York City is Spencer Sunshine, a longtime researcher into the far right in the United States. Thanks for joining us, Spencer. Thanks for having me on the show. Just to begin with, it's been a tumultuous few weeks in the United States with the Black Lives Matters protests. Uh, and it would seem that behind it all is the shadowy specter of Antifa or Antifa. Could you tell us a little bit about why and how Antifa are being blamed for this movement? So the Trump is, President Trump is, a, is the one who is blaming Antifa, and then he has been repeated by the attorney general and, you know, mayors and police chiefs of, of cities. And so basically, in, in, for the right wing, the mainstream right wing in the United States, Antifa has become a kind of um, all-purpose boogeyman. That's described in conspiratorial terms and basically has taken the place that the uh, communists had in the old days in the 50s and later that were always described in conspiratorial terms who in a, 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 were built off of conspiracies about Jews. And so there's this constant invocation of, of Antifa that has very little to do with the real existing Antifa movement. But, you know, people on the right, it might include anyone from a very centrist Democrat to an, an actual real Antifa activist who just happens to be thrown in their, in their description. And why has uh, Trump and Fox and so on, why choose uh, anti-fascists to blame? So it has to do with the when Trump was inaugurated on January 20th, 2017, there was a, a big protest, which is very traditional for anarchists to hold a big protest in, D, in Washington, D.C. that day. And 200 people were arrested at it. There was some property damage. A car was burned. And it was sort of it was the traditional anarchist demonstration, but it was 
sort of billed as an anti-fascist demonstration. And so that kind of got started. And then uh, the same day, there was a big conflict at the University of California, Berkeley, when Milo Yiannopoulos spoke. And uh, the protesters all became labeled as Antifa. It was wildly blown out of proportion what happened. But this uh, kind of got on the news. And then the right wing picked this up and were like, oh, Antifa are leftists who are attacking anyone who's a Trump supporter and they're beating up everyone they don't agree with. And then this this line was strongly, you know, there had uh, for a long time been an anti-Antifa kind of dialogue amongst the neo-Nazi milieu. And this actually got, the exist, their dialogues actually got picked up and incorporated into the mainstream of the, of the conservative politics in the U.S. And then they turned it, but the Nazi stuff is actually about the Antifa movement. The conservatives turned it into like, a next generation of the old communist plot, you know, the, the communists are behind every bed, they're behind all of the disruptions, they're like trying to manipulate the society. So it's nothing really new. Could you talk a little bit about some of the, um, you know, the past incarnations of this, what, what the historical roots of this anti-Antifa thing are? So in the kind of right-wing conspiratorial anti-communism, they, or their conspiratorial way of seeing the world, they don't really believe that black people can organize complex political movements. And so they need to have a mechanism to explain why there are these complex political movements and why these movements succeed, like the civil rights movement. Like if in the eyes of white supremacists, black people are, you know, unintelligent animals, that's how they think about black folks, um, how could they have sort of defeated the, the segregationist whites? And so their answer to this is that there's white or largely white group of people pulling the strings in the background. So in the really racist version of this, it's Jews who are doing this. And then in the during the civil rights movement, they became communists. It was the communists who were behind everything. The communists were behind Martin Luther King Jr. and all these things. All good conspiracy theories have a grain of truth. There were there was some Communist Party involvement. Um, there was actually much more involvement from the Socialist Party is the funny thing. But, you know, there were some activists who were communists who were involved. And so they could point to individuals and give an example or two and then claim that this was, you know, what was running this whole movement. And this was a way to deny agency to the black population and to use the kind of conspiracy theories that the far right relies on for its worldview. So what's been the effects of this rhetoric now and in the recent past? Because on the face of it, it seems to be somewhat ludicrous. But on the other hand, it does seem to have been accepted and is believed by not only those in Trump's base, but a much more extensive range of the population. Yeah. So there hasn't been a, like arrests and convictions like raids, arrests, and convictions of Antifa activists for terrorism charges, this has not happened yet. There, the uh, Trump, you know, recently said that he wants to declare Antifa a terrorist organization, which makes no sense. It's not a cohesive organization, and there's no way to declare something a domestic terrorist organization in the United States. That definition that exists in other countries doesn't exist here. So it's a nonsensical statement. But this stuff has been said before. It's been said since 2017. Trump has reiterated this several times. The FBI has said they are investigating Antifa, uh, the Antifa movement as a domestic, domestic terrorist movement. You know, there have been like research papers put out by the government on the movement. Um, you'll see stuff in the anti-terrorism journals. But um, there hasn't been, to the extent that the FBI or other agencies 
are planning a green scare style raid on Antifa activists or to disrupt the networks. They haven't done it. And I think they're not so stupid. They they understand that this is a, 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 a boogeyman that Trump is creating and that they would be very hard pressed to level the kind of charges that would warrant this level of rhetoric. And they would look foolish in doing it. I mean, I have seen um, accounts of people assembling, it, it seems to be, especially in small towns in the U.S., uh, armed armed groups of men and women who are present in order to stop Antifa from tearing the town apart. Do you think that that's something that will, you know, does that have legs? Are we going to see some kind of a- actual anti-Antifa movement emerge in the wake of this uh, sort of thing? So, yeah, this is actually really disturbing. It seems laughable, but it's a disturbing development. So for a while, the kind of militia groups have said they're going to do anti-Antifa organizing. Of course, this is how the Proud Boys and other sort of alt-right, many uh, alt-right groups uh, like the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer, who are behind a lot of the clashes out west in Portland, Oregon, uh, have always built this stuff as as anti-Antifa stuff. The Oath Keepers, who are the largest... Patriot Movement paramilitary group in the past have said they're going to form armed teams to do anti-antifa training. But mostly this hasn't come to anything where it's just been these large, you know, sort of planned demonstrations with, with both sides plan to bring people to the demonstrations. So this is a new thing. There were all kinds of small towns out west where there was a rumor. The rumor was like buses of antifa activists. It was very specific. We're coming in to have a riot in these little towns. And um, in many cases, the law enforcement believed it and put out, like in Curry County, Oregon, literally it was the county sheriff who put a warning out and called for the local boys to mobilize. Uh, these seem to be largely in communities where there was a militia and right-wing paramilitary presence. And so well, if you, I mean, in my analysis, what was really going on is that the George Floyd demonstrations were had such an impact in the U.S. that they quickly moved out of the big cities into smaller cities, into small towns, even into real rural areas, even to very conservative rural areas where having demonstrations, places that never had an anti-racist demonstration before. And um, well, the, uh, the, the function of these things, of these Antifa bus rumors that were producing ma- um, you know, mobs of armed people, sometimes drunk, just, you know, drunk armed guys in some cases. I mean, they weren't, some were probably more organized than others, is that they really were trying to intimidate people from having protests in these towns for the first time. In most of these cases, it was in opposition to a protest, but the protest in all the cases were these very moderate, you know, uh, anti-racist protests. Um, and so they became confronted with the, you know, large groups of, of uh, um, right-wing, armed right-wing paramilitaries. That whole thing was to me reminiscent of something that happened in Australia uh, just a few months ago at the beginning of the pandemic. There were all of these rumours that a busloads of Asians were heading out into small towns to raid the supermarkets and to empty the shelves. And of course, when any of everyone had heard about this, but whenever anyone actually asked the supermarket if it had happened, it had never happened. And that was what buses of Antifa. Uh, heading out to the small towns of Oregon reminded me of. But we've also seen uh, some other examples of misinformation or disinformation being spread. There was a, a Twitter account set up for Antifa US that uh, said uh, it was time to go riot in the suburbs. And there was also uh, some really bizarre disinfo happening with uh, the 
uh, DC blackout hashtag where Twitter accounts were tweeting that all of the power had been cut to DC, but then it seemed also that uh, accounts were being hacked to spread a counter message. What role do you see disinformation playing in all of this? Well, it's hard to tell what's disinformation and what's just like the crazy rumors slash conspiracy theories that always fly around in a really chaotic situation where it's it's hard to get information, where the authorities are clearly lying. You know, every, nobody's really quite sure what's going on. You know, this seemed very much like the period after September 11th or even was like to be on the streets in Seattle in, in 1999 against the WTO. Like when, you know, authority breaks down and there's not clear communications, like all kinds of stuff fills that void, all kinds of junk. And so that's what some of this was. I mean, I don't know, you know, the DC thing, I, I haven't looked at closely, so I can't comment on that. That might be closer to being some kind of an intentional sort of psyop. The uh, the fake Antifa account, that obviously is intentional. People traced it to the American Identity Movement, who used to be called Identity Europa. They're basically the largest alt-right white nationalist group in the U.S. And that was a repeat of a lot of Antifa hoaxes that were going around in 2017, 2018. There were these fake Antifa accounts, fake flyers were very popular. Uh, and saying things like, oh, Antifa is going to come and kill white people or break into your house or steal your dog or whatever. I mean, it was really ludicrous stuff, but the right wing, it would be produced by a right winger and then fed to some right wing conspiracy site, which would be picked up. And then sometimes it would make its way into the quote unquote legitimate right wing news like Fox News on several occasions. These hoaxes did. There were a lot of fake uh, Antifa Twitter accounts. So this was sort of a rerun of that, and it preceded the Antifa bus thing, uh, and it probably was the, the, the source of the Antifa bus rumor, which, as you noted, is probably similar to many other sort of almost um, urban legends, except it's, it's not in urban areas, right, that the buses of so-and-so are coming in. So yeah, that was definitely disinformation, but that, that was actually something we had seen a lot of before, and so people in the Antifa movement weren't very phased by it. But it did seem to have set off that the rumor that, you know, then did mobilize right wing paramilitaries to intimidate people. The current chaos would seem on the face of it to be rich pickings for some on the far right who've been looking forward to a civil war. And sometimes some elements of that uh, grouping, is, uh, they're referred to as uh, boogaloo or the term boogaloo was used. Is that can you explain what that means and what relevance it has in the, the current context? There's been a lot of talk about this, and it's mostly not meant very much in practice. So the Boogaloo movement is sort of a new – It's a co cohering is a movement, which is a new form of far-right politics, probably cohering by the end of last year. And it's basically like younger people who don't like the militias, they're more influenced by the alt-right, but they're more like – have more libertarian politics. I'm not sure what the translation to Australian politics is, is, you know, like an, an, a very individualistic, um, hyper, hyper liberalism, philosophical liberalism, um, you know, very much like there is no society generally right wing, but might have some anti-racist or like anti-authoritarian elements to it, sort of hyper individualism. And so the, the Boogaloo movement want a second American revolution, which is generally a malicious slogan, but they, you know, are, are interpreting this in their own way. They're not, they're separate from the militia movements. They pull off a lot of alt-right aesthetics and stuff. And there was a lot of noise about them join, joining in to the demonstrations initially, because of course they don't like the police. 
it to inflame things for their own use, but that didn't happen in practice. Some Boogaloo activists did show up for the demonstrations, but there is no evidence that any of them participated in any of the property destruction or attacks on police. Some of them came and guarded buildings from looting, and some of them have participated in the counter-demonstrations. So they're very visible because they wear these Hawaiian shirts, which is a pun on the big luau, which is a reference to the bigaloo. But they haven't had really, there's not that many coming and they haven't had any real impact. That's, so that's the, what is happening is there's more and more counter protests, including this Antifa bus stuff, but other ones too, just straight up ones, drawing, proud boys, militias, and other kinds of far right activists. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au. We're currently talking to Spencer Sunshine, a researcher into the far right from New York City. And whereabouts are the... We had the uh, event in Charlottesville several years ago in which a person was uh, tragically murdered. Those elements of the alt-right represented by figures like Richard Spencer, can you speak to how they're interpreting um, current events? You know, I don't really, they haven't said very much or that's not really in the, they, their opinions have not been reported very much, I'll say. There's individual instances of white nationalists being cited, either observing the demonstrations or participating in them, but it's really like one or two. I think there were two cases in which there was a, a, like a three-person media team, one from V-Dare and one was a Nick Fuentes, who's part of the Grofer movement, showing up and portraying themselves as a sympathetic to the protest media team. And in one case, they claim they were from Vice Canada. But other than that, the white nationalists aren't really involved. There was, again, a lot of uh, conspiracy slash rumors that um, coming from, from progressives that the violence in Minneapolis was all done by white nationalists or that some arsons, um, there was a lot of arsons after, after the initial demonstrations, like in the neighborhoods, yeah, this was done by white white nationalists, but but no proof. So at the same time, we have these marginal actors who are seemingly have seemingly having little influence on um, events, and this uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and associated movements have become quite popular. Like this is a genuinely, it seems, historic moment in U.S. history. How do you do you think it's significant and and how significant is it? What do you think it it means? Yeah, this has really been amazing. It's it's I've been an activist for 30 years and it's been the biggest, fastest, most militant protest wave I've ever seen. I think it really outstripped the LA riots, which were very intense in LA and there were demonstrations around the country that week, but it kind of fizzled and this is almost still growing. I think it's expanding out in society from disenchanted black folks and sympathetic uh, leftists who are mostly white in the U.S. and then has expanded out in, in waves. It's a multiracial and, you know, some of the demands being voiced are quite radical. It, it really does look like it is going to change something in policing. You know, uh, they're just the 
I think people in power realized that as much as they didn't want to make reforms, they were going to have to give something like, or, or they would simply not be able to control the situation. But it's really unclear what's going to happen. There, the, in the last few days, it's taken a far more moderate turn. Last week, it almost there was a revolutionary element to it. Uh, and in the last few days, I think nationally, it has taken a more moderate turn. We'll see what happens to it. It would it would be unfortunate if it just sort of fizzled out. I mean, it's nowhere near that in terms of inertia. But, you know, the problem in the U.S. is, and this was the failure of Black Lives Matter, and this isn't, I don't I don't think it's right to call this a Black Lives Matter movement. That was a very distinct kind of movement with a very particular way of doing things. And some people basically copyrighted the name um, and, you know, so formed their own specific structure with, with authorized chapters. And this is a different thing even though it is using a lot of the, the, the slogan, Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's, it, what's happened in the U.S. is that all of the police departments are controlled individually by each city or county. And so there's no way you can make, there's not controlled federally. And so you can't, to really change them, you'd have to change each particular one, right? Or you'd have to bring them under federal control. Historically, since in the post-war period, all the civil rights gains, uh, and most progressive gains have been, through getting the federal government to um, the ones that have been ensconced are ensconced by the federal, you know, laws being changed, abortion rights, civil rights, much LGBTQ rights. And so there's no way to do that because you'd have to bring all of these local police departments under federal control, which the police would resist furiously in a way even separate from trying to change actual styles of policing. So it's a little unclear. I mean, this was, I think, the the rocks that Black Lives Matter crashed on, that they didn't really know how they were going to produce these changes in policing. And it was a broader movement than just that. Uh, this is a little more focused on policing, um, much more focused. Uh, and so, I mean, it's really not, I mean, it's totally wide open kind of about what's going to happen, about what the demands are going to be. Like defunding of the police departments has risen, I, which is not something I'd really heard before or heard before these protests. Um, here in New York, the, the more radical argument was for disarming the police. Um, so uh, defunding has become the sort of most prominent thing that is acceptable both to radicals and moderates. But we'll see people are now coming in and trying to say, oh, no, we, you know, they want something even more tepid. But um, it, it's not clear how this is going to play out. But it, it is a major it's been really uh, quite astounding to watch. I've never seen something like this before. The elephant in the room that we haven't discussed is the uh, figure of George Soros, who has also been blamed in various ways for uh, the uprisings. I understand that uh, Soros is often, his Jewishness is often emphasised. Uh, just, I guess, could you speak to why Soros has um, assumed this position and uh, what, if any, role does anti-Semitism play in the kinds of conspiracy theories that have been uh, produced that attempt to explain it? You can't separate conspiracy theories from anti-Semitism. They're always deeply entwined with each other. And most conspiracy theories emerge from our secularized version of or secularized versions of or have some interaction with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So Soros is the whole conspiracy exists about Soros because he's a liberal Jewish financier. And in, you know, the days of saying the Jewish bankers, you know, are no longer acceptable in public. But if you say, if you name a specific Jewish banker, you can do that. And, you know, people in the Trump administration have done this. And so basically Soros is just the example 
uh, of the Jew, you know, it's Soros, sort of the Rothschilds. Soros has become more popular. Uh, obviously, he's alive and a single figure. I mean, there are Rothschilds who are still alive. So yeah, it's just an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And I mean, the, he has no involvement at all in the protests. And his, his him being invoked is just because it allows the right to use anti-Semitism and use it in a way that they're not res- that they're not going to be called out for it because it's somehow acceptable to describe Soros in these traditional anti-Semitic ways. And again, it's there's a Jewish control of a black liberation movement, right? It, in reality, this is a spontaneous movement. The, it does seem to be nationally largely black-led. In some places, it's like black and Latino. Um, it is multiracial, though, and it's not controlled or launched by anybody. It couldn't possibly be. It just sort of flared up really suddenly. It reminded me of all these these old you know, text I had read about the 60s and spontaneity. And uh, I sort of pictured this stuff then, but seeing it, you're just like, oh, wow, yeah, you couldn't possibly organize that. So right-wingers don't believe that. They believe all this stuff is all organized and there's always somebody behind it. And so, you know, Soros is the Jew behind the scenes for them. How do you see uh, the Trump administration's opposition to anti-fascism proceeding from here? It seems that uh, they're certainly coming up to... Uh, the edges of fascism with some of the things that are going on. We've seen, you know, Trump talking about when the looting starts, the shooting starts, uh, and really embracing this uh, paramilitary force that is out there willing to do his bidding. Uh, do you see uh, them devolving further towards fascism? Well, what's going to happen with the election is really going to be is again a wild card. The the part of Trump's attack on the anti fascist movement has been because it is, you know, it's in locked in conflict with a piece of his base and to remove the anti-fascist movement by having federal raids across the country would allow a violent and sometimes armed part of his base of uh, free, free reign. And so if, if it was enacted, it would be a favor to some of his supporters. I mean, even beyond the, the boogeyman style stuff that's created, um, practically and physically, it would be a favor to a chunk of his supporters. But, you know, the election's coming up, the election's in November. It, it's it's going to be a really crazy rest of the year in the United States. I could not, could not look in a crystal ball and tell you what's going to happen. Anything could happen. Really, anything could happen. Spencer, you would, um, you've researched uh, anti-fascism in the U.S. and elsewhere. Do you think that uh, anti-fascists can, uh, from an anti-fascist perspective, I guess, play a useful role in the current movement in the United States? If there's anything that anti-fascists should be doing, uh, what do you think that is? No, I, I, I don't think that they do. I mean, it's a really ridiculous thing. Of course, anti-fascists are taking part of the in the protests, but kind of almost as leftists. Like, there's no special role for anti-fascists. For, they don't have a special organizing role but it's not they're not there's not that much right-wing involvement where they would be playing a particular role separate than any other activist would so i think between now i mean the role of anti-fascists will be if right-wing vigilantes are mobilized more and they become a force that will be where anti-fascists are going to have more of a role but otherwise it's like it's just odd that that the whole attention turned towards them, you know, because of Trump's deciding to, to to use them as a scapegoat because they're really not centrally connected to what's going on. You know, they're very much way off to the side. 
I did hear that uh, Venezuela has now uh, entered the game. I I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, the Trump administration has uh, made indications that they now believe that there are elements of the Venezuelan state that are, um, you know, helping to organise to uh, perpetuate uh, the movement in the US. And they've uh, somewhat displaced anti-fascists as being the uh, boogeyman. <laughs> well, um, that's good news, I guess. Um, <laughs> go the, the Venezuelans uh, generally aren't in the country, so it's harder to uh, prosecute or persecute them. Um, whereas most anti-fascists, you know, are residents of the United States. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's hilarious. You know, I mean, my theory is that Trump doesn't want to attack black Americans. He's actually been very careful not to do that. And he's naming all of these other, you know, him and his uh, administration are naming all these other actors because it's a way to blame somebody without actually further antagonizing the group of people who are already mobilized against you. And that's my perspective about why this kind of stuff keeps coming up. And it fits into their existing uh, talking points, right? Like the far right base is already primed to hate Venezuela and anti-fascists. So they can sort of say these words and ring the Pavlovian bell and the dogs will salivate. Well, we'll have to leave it there on that uh, disturbing image of Trump salivating. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Spencer. Uh, if people would like to read more of your stuff, where can they do so? Uh, my website is spencersunshine.com. I've got articles, links for other articles up there. Twitter, a lot, at Transform6789. And uh, I have a Patreon if you want to throw a couple couple bucks in. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, that was very interesting, Andy. It was, Ken. Do you know what else I find interesting? No, please tell that 3CR is currently running their Radiothon online in these uncertain times. You can go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and keep the station on the air and by extension this show, where I think you'll agree that you will not find content like this on anywhere else on the radio waves. That's true, Ken. That's true. Well, that is all from us for this week. Global Intifada is up next. We'll see you next week.